to the Wild Feather Podcast. I'm Brooke Dunwell, serial entrepreneur, sponge for life, and lover of people. Join me as we uncover the stories of courageous female entrepreneurs, founders, and investors pushing beyond limitless boundaries. Let's explore their creative journeys and pursuits to greatness. Tamsin LaCourt is joining us today. Tamsin is the founder and CEO of Zenbin, the UK's first digital low-waste coach. She started out as a cancer biologist before taking the plunge and committing to Zenbin full-time. She believed that she could have a bigger impact addressing the climate crisis than waiting 10 years for a novel drug to be discovered. Thanks, Tamsin, for joining us on the podcast. We're so excited to have you and to hear your founder journey. Well, thanks, Brooke. I'm really happy to be here as well. Yeah, so cool. So now you're at a very interesting stage in your startup because you're at the very beginning, right? Absolutely. So I'm pre-revenue, pre-MVP. I'm really at ideation phase and prototyping. That's exciting. Okay, so give us a little brief summary of what Zenben is doing? What is your goal with Zenbin and what does it do? Um, so Zenbin actually came to light from my own personal frustrations. Um, you know, like I, I'm very into sustainability and I want to do whatever is possible as an individual. But every day I was faced with this exact same problem, which was how do I recycle my packaging? I would spend 10 minutes in front of the bin trying to figure out what could go in what bin. And then I noticed that my colleagues at work were going through the exact same thing. And then once I started taking control of the waste initiatives at work, I was the go-to person for all of these questions, except I didn't have the answers neither. Right. So we would spend half an hour debating, peering at the labels, checking at the, checking the council websites, such a waste of time. And so I thought, you know, like this is the era of technology. Why is there not something more accessible, like more simple? And that's how I came up with the idea of Zenbin. So initially it was solely going to focus on recycling. It was going to be a mobile app where users could scan the barcode of the, the packaging and find out how to dispose of it. So whether any of it would go in the general waste, any of it would go in the recycling, and if it had to be rinsed, separated, all of those questions answered. But then talking to potential users, I realized there was a much bigger potential um, for Zenbin. And that's how I kind of transformed it into becoming a personalized low-waste coach. Mm -hmm. So we would still have that barcode scanning feature. But on top of that, given that we're gathering so much intel onto user consumption patterns, we can actually extrapolate that and provide personalized suggestions to help them on their low-waste journeys. Mm. So right now, the internet and social media is plagued by bloggers, myself included, who give these blanket advices on how to reduce your waste. But the thing is, we don't take into account your um, income, your schedule, or any of your needs. A person who has certain disabilities or allergies may not be able to access those swaps that another person can. And so that can create um, anger and frustration of not being welcomed into the movement. So that's the last thing we want. We want everyone to be able to decrease their footprint, especially with the increased awareness of the climate crisis. 
And so Zenbin would cater to that by providing those personalized suggestions and as well as creating a learning platform for the users to learn a bit more about climate change, learn how plastics pollution relates to climate change, how waste relates to climate change, and, you know, provide like this, this community feel as well as a really accessible tool for people to become involved in the movement. That's super cool. Okay, so for our listeners, Tamsin lives in the UK, right? So your recycling procedures are a bit different than what they are in the States, I think. So just to give a little bit of um, context, run us through just a summary of how you recycle or how people don't recycle, whichever one works in the UK. Because yeah, like in the state, we have like recycle bins. I don't know about every city, but and every city's different. But we just dump everything in there. We don't have to separate it all out. So, how does that work? Okay, so in the UK, it's kind of similar in the sense that every district, what you would call district, so us, it's councils, has a different waste policy. Okay, and even within those districts, you can have different policies. So for example, I was living in living in this council called Lambeth in South London. And the first couple of years I was in council flats. So we had these huge bins accessible to us, but only general waste and recycling. So we all the apartments so that it was like over a hundred apartments there that would have access to these huge bins. We would take our waste down and we could either put our recycling in the recycling bin or the general waste in the general waste. Except most people were ill-informed, and so a lot of it ended up mixed up, and the bins were not cared for properly. It was disgusting, in all honesty. And then I moved to these quaint little Victorian houses in the same council, so it's three converted flats, and we had access to these private bins that was just for, that, for those three flats, plus a food bin. So what this mm -hmm. goes to show is that basically there's so much inequality in... Um, waste services across mm -hmm. the councils and between the councils. You've mm -hmm. got Camden in the north of London that has nine recycling streams. They have glass, they have paper, they have uh. metal. And so it's really specific to the councils, which adds on to the complexity of the system, which is if you cross the line between the councils, what you thought was right at home may not be right in your office, for example. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. How many... That has to be um, complex in trying to break all that down for the people that are picking up the recycle, right? Like, do they have a truck for glass and a truck for plastic and a truck? Like, how is that what they do? They have just trucks that specify what they're picking up? So you wouldn't actually see it on the bin. There's no um, on the truck. There's no label on the truck. Um, it's just uh -huh. you, you're given certain collection dates. So you uh. would know when to take out your own garbage and recycling. But for example, for, Cam for Camden, I'm assuming they either have a separate truck for everything or a truck that has two to three different streams integrated. So they mm -hmm. would have separation. So they could pour several different bins in and it would still keep the different waste streams separated. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I only had one recycling bin. So that's what we called commingled recycling. So you would put all of the recycling in it. And then that would be taken by one recycling truck to a triage center where they would sort through the recycling to put it in the various streams that are for later use. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. It's fascinating to me how every town council does it different, right? I can see why this would be extremely helpful. And you're gathering so much research and data along the way, it sounds like, and you can leverage that information. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started this journey based on my own personal hypothesis, which Mm -hmm. was that recycling is confusing. But as I started delving into the subject further, I found out that there was so much more to this problem than just confusion. There was the inequality that I mentioned. So a lot of the communities, we have quite a few um, people of color in, in across the UK, and they don't identify with the typical stereotypical white recycler because they are usually from lower income and therefore have access to those disgusting bins that are ill-managed by the council. Mm-hmm. And so there's no incentive for them. Plus, I do, there are discrepancies across education systems. So dependent on the school you may go to, they may touch upon recycling or not. So there's a whole host of factors, as well as the rise of documentaries that are uncovering the truths about recycling, especially plastic recycling. You know, in the last couple of years, we found out that most of our plastic waste in the UK is exported to China, Malaysia, and now Turkey. And people are disgusted by that because they're putting in so much effort to sort their waste to find out that most of it is not actually recycled, or at least it's shipped off to poorer countries. Right. Interesting. That's really sad. So... You just started this founder journey, right? You've spent a lot of your career in research. Yes, absolutely. So I am—I definitely did not follow the typical path of an entrepreneur. Well, at least, you know, given what I'm specializing in now. Um, I actually pursued studies in biological sciences and cancer biology and then became a research tech for a biotech startup specializing in immunotherapy for genetic disorders. So very far away from what I'm currently (laughs) looking into. That's great, though. I mean, I feel like a lot of stories or a lot of founders have, it's not like they went to school and their ultimate thought process was, I'm going to school and I'm going to start this company and this, right? Like it either discovered a problem such as yourself, have a self-frustration or you come up with an idea, right? Like I, I don't, I mean, maybe the, the kids today, I say kids cause I'm older, um, but maybe, (laughs) (laughs) maybe the generation today that's going to college thinks about how they want to start their own company and being an entrepreneur. But when I was that age, it was not the popular thing to do, you know? So I think that it's cool that you came up with this idea out of your own personal frustration. So it means it's valid. There's some validity in the marketplace for it, right? Mm. I agree that entrepreneurship is really accessible now. Like there's so many masters and courses available to, to people who want to develop, um, a business. There are even accelerators and incubators that welcome people without ideas or business models just because they have the potential to be an entrepreneur. Um, so it's definitely more mainstream now. But despite yeah. that, I think <laughs> I think the media, or at least the image that I have of an entrepreneur is typically 
male. And as well, they either come from a tech background or a business background. And I had, I have neither. (laughs) So, you know, this is me for the past couple of months, I've been taking courses on understanding what, you know, profits were, what operating margins were, you know, all of these numbers, as well as tech talk, which is completely foreign to me, but it's been, it's been an amazing process, I have to say. That's awesome. So you have you have some recent news, which is exciting. So you're in the finals of a pitch competition. Have you done a lot of pitch comp- pitch competitions, or what has been your strategy on getting plugged in within the entrepreneur world? Well, so actually, this is my first uh, pitch competition. Um, I entered because I really like the format in the sense that. You could just have an idea, but no prototype, no market validation, nothing. You just needed a, a, an idea for a social impact venture, and they would help you. They would provide you with the tools to pursue it. So I really enjoyed the process because despite founding Zenbin last year, mm-hmm. I was completely lost. There is so much information out there, and I had no idea what to do. And I participated in a few um, like accelerated courses, mm-hmm. which were helpful, which provided guidance. But I think I wasn't in the right mindset to grasp all of the learning mm-hmm. and apply the, well, apply them, you know, um, especially because, as I mentioned um, earlier, I faced severe depression. So there was an eight month hiatus where I didn't do anything and I didn't check Zenbin. I didn't work on Zenbin. I just focused on myself because if I'm not there, well, Zenbin isn't there. Right. Right. Well, and I think that I know you had mentioned that COVID just kind of, it, it had an effect, right? It was kind of like a final straw. I feel like that it just, ignited maybe more of your depression so how are like looking forward well let me back up so you came up with this idea or you started working on zenbin within the last six to eight months would you say it would be 12 months now 12 months okay so the last year so during this whole COVID, so you started out and then um you started coming up with this idea and utilizing this. How do you think that battling with, um, let me just hold on a second, battling with these um, mental situations, how do you think that impacts or benefits or what have you learned? Like if somebody's maybe faces these types of things going forward, like what advice would you give to them from a founder's standpoint? Because I think it's very admirable that you're able to overcome, rise above and overcome and start a company. Like, that's amazing. Um, Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is to remember that each person's mental health journey is different. Sure. So my depression started, I would say, December 2019. But I wasn't aware of it. Um, I was just navigating through this very bland life, just getting through day by day. And then actually COVID was my savior because Mm -hmm. I was given time away. 
I was, I was given this because I was a research tech, I didn't have any work, you know, I was still employed, but there was nothing I could do because all of my work is based in the lab. Mm-hmm. So I was stuck at home and that's when I decided to start working in Zenbin, but it was a side project. You know, I didn't think I would go far with it. I just wanted to, to pursue something to keep me busy during, during the pandemic. And initially, my plans were actually to pursue my scientific journey to to finish my work as a research tech and start a PhD. Mm-hmm. And it's actually when the economy reopened that the depression hit me the hardest because I had to face the truth that I wasn't happy in my job, despite having wonderful bosses and an amazing project that I was responsible for. I just wasn't happy and it forced me to look at that in the face. So in regards to advice that I would give people, I think the most important thing is you want to avoid it in the first place and burnout and depression is so common amongst entrepreneurs because of the high stress levels due to high risk situations, due to uncertainty. And so, you know, you want to stay in tune with with your emotions. You want to stay in tune with your mental health. And the fabulous thing that entrepreneurship enables you to do is actually to take a step away whenever you need to, because you are in charge of your schedule Mm -hmm. at this point. So if you're feeling down, just take the day off. There's no point pushing through work if you have, if, if you're not, 100% there you're just going to produce suboptimal work Mm -hmm. and I think that was one of my biggest lessons was the fact that I was given the choice to pursue something that I was so passionate about I think that's important but a lot of people aren't in a position to be able to pursue a job that they're they're passionate about simply Mm -hmm. because of income restraints which I find so sad you know that that we we live in a society where we have to get we have to work to get an income rather than working on something that we truly believe on. I think that's great though that you have the the insight to be able to take a step back and say, I need to walk away for today or for a few hours and reset, right? I think there's I think we as humans in general need to do that. But especially as an entrepreneur, because life's crazy. I mean you're it's a roller coaster and you're not, I mean, you may have experienced some of this roller coaster stuff, but just wait until you start the development and the, in the grind. Right. I think you mentioned grit when I was talking to you before grit and resilience, those are two major components that you have to have as an entrepreneur, I think. And you already have a grasp of that, which I think is great. You know, it's all about accepting change. I think we need to evolve into a growth mindset. And part of that is being welcoming of change. Most of us resist change. We like our comfort zone. But the thing is, we, our biggest learnings come from periods of challenge and uncertainty. If, if you were to ask me if I could be mentally healthy, six months back when I was at the height of my depression, I would have told you, yes, please take this away from me. 
But now that I'm slowly easing back into somewhat of a healthy mental health, I wouldn't want that taken away from me simply because it was such an eye-opening experience. If I didn't have that, I would still be at my old job. I would still be doing nine to five. I would still have endless meetings every week, which I didn't understand the point of. And I was practically falling asleep during each one. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> and I wasn't the only one, so it made me feel better. <laughs> but I just, I just don't understand our work system nowadays. I don't understand our work culture. You know, in my, in my last job, I was told I had to stay until five. But especially as a scientist, you're not in control of your time like that in the sense that your experiments run for a specific amount of hours. Mm -hmm. When they're done, they're done. I'm not going to do something else if it's going to take me until the next day, if that makes any sense. So there would be days where I would be done with my experiments at two and I could analyze the results, but I could do that at home very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was that, that lack of flexibility to cater to the different needs of people's. As an introvert, I much prefer being at home alone. Um, if I had my own office, maybe it would have been different, but it wasn't the case. I was in an office with like 15 other people. So it was bustling. Everyone was joking around, talking, and it was impossible to work there. Um, so the, there's that. The pandemic really opened our eyes in regards to diversity of work. But mm -hmm. another thing that needs to change, I think, is the schedule of work, which is that some people are more productive in the morning, some people are more productive at night, yet we force everyone to conform to this nine to five schedule that does not prioritize productivity. Mm -hmm. And I that that's one of the other lessons that I've really embraced during my entrepreneur journey is as well as listening to the state of my mind, it's being mm -hmm. able to determine when I should work and when I should rest and really striking a balance, which is not what is said in all of the, the startup founder essays and whatnot. They always emphasize on it's so challenging. You're going to spend sleepless nights on your project. And, right. you know, th that's not what I want. I want to maintain my health whilst doing it. And I think that there is room for that. There is still room for, for improvement in the startup journey that we don't talk about enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They, it makes it sound like you have to work 80 hours a week. Uh, if you read and listen to all of the entrepreneur essays, articles, every, you know, what everyone says, but you're right. I think that's fantastic that you've learned that early on and that you are acknowledging that and aware. I think awareness is key. Um, so let's talk about what are some of the, um, like going into this, did you have any fears or I know, like you mentioned, you had to overcome imposter syndrome. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I think everyone, well, especially females, I feel like more so than males, we deal or face imposter syndrome. And I know myself, it's like 
ongoing, right? It never ends. I may get over it for a little bit and then the next phase, it's another dose of imposter syndrome. So how did that, how did you find yourself overcoming that? And is it a big role in your life or is it just come up every once in a while? You know, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm plagued with imposter syndrome, especially with me being part of the, this competition, this pitch competition and being faced with the, the image of the other startups. I am terrified now, you know, before I was in my little bubble, now I have to face the real world and I feel like an absolute fraud. Not only, not only because of my professional reconversion, but as well as my, my mental health in the sense that, you know, I would get these panic attacks or I wouldn't be able to work every day of the week. And I'm like, can I do this? This is not what a founder should be doing. A founder should be dedicating their, their days and nights to the project. And I can't do that. And as well, you know, the fact that I'm a, I like to call myself a recovering perfectionist, but really I'm more of the perfectionist. The recovering is coming along slowly, but surely. <laughs> And so there's this aspect where I would just beat myself up because everything has to be perfect. Uh. And as someone who has no idea what they're doing, nothing is perfect. So it's a bit of a challenge. But what's really helped me deal with this imposter syndrome is, like you mentioned, the fact that we're not exposed to women entrepreneurs as much as we are to men. And therefore, we have this image that we're breaking into an industry that's just not welcoming of us. And so I sort of overcame that, that bias by joining female communities. Mm. They really were my savior in the sense that they were the only ones who could provide support and advice based on the prejudice that we face as women in this mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I were to approach men, for example, on advice on how to approach investors or what investors would ask at, as questions, they wouldn't be able to give me the questions that I would actually be asked, but the women can. And so I really found comfort in, in those networks. And the other day, actually, I was practicing my pitch with one of my good friends, and I was telling her that I, I felt like crap, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And she actually told me that the smartest people experience imposter syndrome. And that made me feel better because if that's true, then it means that I've got something going on in my brain, got something going on for me. Yeah. And she gave me the example of someone who, so she worked at an AI startup and amongst their first hires, they were looking for a data engineer. And this guy came along for the interview and he actually had no idea what he was applying for. He didn't know anything about the company. He hadn't even watched, like, checked the website. Mm -hmm. And she was like, see, if, if Fred, let's call this person Fred, if Fred has the guts to go for it when they have absolutely no qualifications and you have worked on your product, you've reached out to your potential users, you're learning from advisors and experts in the domain, why are you undermining yourself? There is no reason to do so. And that really uplift me. And from now on, I'm going to try to see it her way. It's a challenge. 
especially as a French person, you know, we're brought up in an educational system that doesn't encourage pride. So I'm trying to overcome that and see it her way, which is I've got some qualities, I've got some strengths, but I'm also aware of where I'm lacking. And therefore I look for the people to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. I don't think, do you feel like everyone thinks that you have to know it all because you're the founder of this company? Like you have to know what you're doing? It just came to me because as a founder, it doesn't mean that you have all the answers. Like learning is a majority of the journey, right? So you can't like shoot out of the gates being an expert at everything. No one has been and no one will be, right? So it's a journey of learning. And I think that no one has that expectation. Maybe we just put that expectation on our head that we have to be amazing. But reality is, is that it's, it's our own journey, first of all, each. And you've got the guts to do this, right? Like you've been given a vision. So you're following it out, right? Like, I would assume it's, I guess, with research, say, so and you doing your research, do you have the answers before you do the research? No, no, that's the point of research. Exactly. <laughs> right. So the whole point of this entrepreneur founder journey is you're sorting a problem, right? Like you're finding answers to problems and you're building it. I don't know. So, so that's what I thought initially, but as an early stage entrepreneurship, entrepreneur what -hmm. you learn is that you have to wear multiple hats and that means that you don't need to be an expert but you at least need sound understanding of those hats you're going to wear Mm -hmm. so for example I'm not I'm not from a tech background and ideally I'm looking to raise funds to outsource app development but for me to outsource it I have to understand what I need what technical requirements are needed And for me to be able to understand the language of the engineers I'm going to hire. So it doesn't mean I have to become an expert. No, but it does mean that I need at least basic understanding of the different industries I'm touching upon. Absolutely. You just reminded me of of another one of my guests that is out of the UK. And she does this very thing. So she used to be an engineer and she started a startup. Anyway, she quickly realized that female founders who aren't tech have a hard time navigating because they just don't know. They don't know the languages. They don't know how to navigate through the technical part. And that's what she does is she helps female founders, um, sort out what you need, where to go, what to do, what to look for, etc. I'll make an intro for you because she's right there. Oh, she's that's awesome. amazing. Yeah. That, that's godsend. Yeah. Literally, I've been reading these these articles every day and not understanding a single word of what I'm reading. <laughs> so you're trying to like, in addition to being the visionary and the business aptitude and whatnot. Now you're trying to put an engineering hat on. Is that 
<laughs> not not so much put it on, but at least dabble because yeah. from, from people I've talked to, at least people who've who've done this before me, they've said that unless you specifically know what you're requesting, the chances are you're going to end up with a product that's not exactly what you want. And therefore, there's so much back and forth that it's just, it incurs so many additional charges. And I mm -hmm. want to avoid that. You know, I'm at such an early stage that I can't afford to spend unnecessarily. Sure, sure. So are you going to do this full time? Yes. Absolutely. That's exciting. So how does the mobile app, how will it be profitable or will it be profitable? Is the goal to drive revenue with it or no? Yes. Um, so because I believe low waste and recycling especially should be accessible to everyone, which is not the case nowadays, and only reinforces the divide between middle and low income households, um, the revenue, the business model will depend on affiliate marketing and sponsor posts. Mm. Because we will be reaching such a large user base who are especially looking to change their lifestyles and decrease their waste footprints, mm -hmm. we will be able to leverage that position and suggest to them specific brands that we've double-checked to ensure that they meet all of our standards in terms of ethical uh, production. But yeah, so, so we'll basically curate a, a specific list of brands that we're willing to work with and use those as personalized suggestions to the users based on their consumption patterns. That's awesome. So if you were to give advice to anyone else that wanted to start a company or that was um, in similar shoes, what advice would you give them from your perspective at this point? I would tell them to silence all of the tiny voices in their head and to go for it. I mean, life is too short. I understand that I'm very privileged to be able to quit my job and pursue this full time without any revenue. But if they can, or if they can find some kind of compromise, they should. Uh, because it's, it's so empowering and we need more and more startups, to be honest. Like we have so many huge challenges to address and I don't believe that big companies are the solution. You know, there, there's so much bureaucracy, so, so, so many politics, so many other priorities that they've got going on that they can't address these other issues. And these are imminent threats to humanity, to our society, to our planet's well-being, to our health. And we have some of the greatest minds and we should put that, that to use. So if they want, they should. Um, my second advice is do not underestimate the power of market research. That is so important because the thing is you come up with an idea based on your hypothesis, but it's only a hypothesis. So you want to confirm it or re refine it. And you want to make sure that you actually have a market. You know, I initially thought that I would get the, the UK councils to pay for this app because I didn't want the users to do so. And it turns out they don't want to pay for it because they don't believe that it's their responsibility that the waste management is a mess. So they told me to get to reach out to the producers and it's so much back and forth. 
that I wouldn't have uncovered it had I not reached out to these potential clients, customers. Imagine if I were two years down the line and then I'm like, hey, do you want to pay for this now? And they're like, no. So I've got no revenue and nowhere to go because at that point I'm looking to hire people. Mm -hmm. Those are great pieces of advice for sure. Market research is, I think, a game changer. Absolutely. I wouldn't have thought it initially because I was so convinced of my hypothesis, given that I was building this for me, but it was so insightful. And it showed me that even though I was my ideal customer, there could be different types of customers and each one would have different problems. Mm -hmm. So what keeps you motivated? What is your motivation? I have, I have many motivations. <laughs> my head is all over the place. But I, <laughs> I would say that my main one is, well, actually, in all honesty, I am terrified of dying irrelevant. Not that I crave fame. I don't care. But I don't want to live my life and not contribute anything. And so I guess this is my way of giving back to society. And having learned more about what we call waste colonialism, so the fact that rich countries export their waste to poorer nations because we don't have the infrastructure to deal with it, well, it's really touched home, you know, because my, my mom is from Mauritius, so she's one of those vulnerable communities mm -hmm. that is currently facing the threats of climate crisis. They have rising sea levels. They're experiencing increased extreme weather events. And I find it horrifying that we, rich countries, can just keep on living the way we, we are. And I want to change that. And there are a bunch of people who want to change that. You know, the, the climate activists, the low wasters, loads of people are trying to do what they can within the system. And I just want to make it easier for them. I believe in collective effort and collective action in building a huge momentum in changing the way we live. Mm. So I usually ask, what do you want your legacy to be? But you answered a little bit, but I'll ask you anyway. So what do you want your legacy to be? That's actually a really interesting question. I think I've never thought of it. Maybe it's because I'm only 24. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, right? You don't even have to answer it, but just um, I guess my I, I want to be remembered, at least by the people I love, the people around me, for doing something useful. Mm -hmm. And if I can give back and be remembered by Mauritius, that would be so meaningful for me. You know, as someone who's lived abroad all her life, whose mom has rarely, if ever, shared her Mauritian culture, I am so disconnected to my roots. And yet I feel like I have to do something. And so if if I'm remembered or if if what I do has an impact in slowing down the effects of the waste crisis, then I'm happy. Yeah. At least I would have done something. Yeah, that's great. And... Real quick, the female communities that you found help with and that you found support in, what are those just 
so our listeners can hear about a few options. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, that that's the first step I would recommend any entrepreneur or anyone seeking to understand more about the startup world. Some of my favorites are Alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really like iFund Women and Female Founders, they, um, as well as The Guild. So some mm-hmm. of them offer... Um, I don't know if you call them incubators, but at least like short courses of a co- that last a couple of weeks to help you ideate, uh, come up with a prototype and start testing it. If you're looking for, for help in, in that, um, as well as like mentoring, I would recommend taking those courses. I did um, last year and they were so, so insightful. They were a great starting point. That's awesome. So how can we help you succeed? What can we do for you? Um, I guess I think the, the best way to help me at the moment is, well, first of all, your connection to your friend, yeah, uh, the technical advisor, that would be so helpful Absolutely, and spreading the word, but that's the point of this podcast, you know, elevating the voice of female entrepreneurs. Yeah. So when's your end goal? Like, when do you think your app will be ready? Or is it too soon to think about that? Um, so in all honesty, it really depends on this pitch. I'm, I'm applying for other competitions and other, other funds. But because I'm so early on, I don't want to approach a VC just yet. I don't want to give mm-hmm. away equity. Um, so if all goes well and if big if I managed to secure the 10K, I'm looking to launch the beta by the end of the year and then have the public launch next year. That's awesome. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. Yes. I'm going to keep an eye out. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Well, I so appreciate your time today and it's been great talking to you. And I'll make that intro as soon as we finish up because I'm excited about that actually for you. Um, and if there's anything that you ever need or need any help or connected to anyone, feel free to reach out. We're happy to help. Oh, fantastic. That's so, that's so nice of you, Brooke. And it was actually, this is my first podcast and this was really fun. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad that you liked it. (laughs) Um, and, and same goes for you. You know, I'm, I'm still early on in my journey, but if I can help in any way getting, um, guests for your, your next seasons or, spread the word about the wild feather podcast i'd love to oh that'd be great fantastic we're i'm always open to new guests so anyone you come across or you think of feel free to make an intro fantastic all right awesome well thank you so much and have a wonderful night thank you you can can see the late in the uk right later but anyway all right good luck take care and keep in touch thank you All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Wild Feather. Be authentic, be limitless, and love yourself. (laughs) 